morning. It really is exciting to think about who God is and the idea that he is a chain breaker. And really, that's going to be our look at Philippians. We're going to take a look at the book of Philippians or the letter of Philippians. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles with me right now to Philippians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. And as we turn to Philippians chapter 1, I just want to start like we often do with a question. And here's my question for us today. Have you ever received a letter... Have you ever received a letter from an admirer? Have you ever received a letter from someone who just wants to encourage you or who admires you? Have you ever received a letter like that? I know for our high school students, we're at the beginning of that season where colleges are sending out those letters saying, hey, we're interested in you and we hope you'll be interested in us. Or maybe they're sending out information about scholarships. Hey, we'd be interested in you applying for the scholarship. That's always exciting when, when one of those letters shows up in the mail. I know when Londa and I started dating, uh, when we started dating several years ago, um, she was at OBU, and I was at, excuse me, she was at OU. Where did I go to school? How old am I now? She was at OU, and I was at OBU, and I would go see her periodically. We'd go out on dates, you know, we'd pick, I'd pick her up and those kinds of things, and one day I come and I pick her up, and, and she's just like, oh, thank you so much. That was such a sweet thing you did, and I'm just smiling, and, and she says, yeah, that, that poem that you wrote and you left on my car that was so sweet. It was so kind. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Some guy had written her like this love poem and left it unsigned on her car there at OU. So I had a little competition, but I beat him. So that's always a good thing. Um, actually, the way I beat him was awesome because uh, come Christmas, I gave her a Christmas gift. And for that Christmas gift at the top of it, it said it had a note. And the note said, I like you. Do you like me? Will you marry me? Please check this box. And her answer looked something like that. Uh, she, said, she said yes, and so I, I won. Uh, that's always a good thing. But have you, ever, have you ever received a letter that was just encouraging or that was just, that was just uh, someone letting them know that, that they admire you? When we take a, a look at the letter of Paul to the Philippians, to a large degree, that's what we see. And before we read the passage, I want to just kind of give you some context for what the letter of Paul to the Philippians is really all about and kind of where it all came from. If you'll remember, Paul, Paul was that man in the gospel who before he came to Christ, before he came to faith in Christ, his name was Saul, and he was a Jewish man who was really a Jewish fanatic. He was, he was an, a Jewish fanatic who was a rising star in the Jewish faith. And, and he, he, viewed Christianity, he viewed Christianity as a threat to his Judaism. He believed that Christianity was, was a sect of Judaism that was going to cause them troubles. And so he was such a rising star and such an influential person in, the gener in his generation in Judaism that he was able to get legal authority to go from town to town to seek out Christians, to interrogate them, sometimes to torture them, and sometimes even to kill them. So this is Saul. This is a man named Saul that, that, that we're talking about. And, and Saul, on the road to Damascus, has this incredible experience with God. He has this encounter with the living Christ. And in this encounter, his life is transformed and changed forever. He changes his name from Saul to Paul. And then Paul becomes one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest evangelists our world has ever known. And Paul had this habit. Once he was converted, he would go from town to town. And the first thing he would do is he would step into a town and he would go to the people he was familiar with. He would go to the Jewish people. And he would share the gospel with them. He would tell them what he knows about who Jesus is. Some of them would would receive Christ, would place their faith in Christ. Some of them wouldn't. He would start a church in that town. 
And ultimately, sometimes those that didn't pray to receive Christ would cause him trouble, and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes he'd be thrown in jail. Sometimes he'd get in trouble. But he'd end up moving from one town to the next. And so we see this in the life of Paul. It was the, the, his conversion experience. If you read it in Galatians chapter 1, it really is a beautiful thing because after he was saved, after he placed his faith in Christ, the church really still wasn't sure what to make of him. And in Galatians chapter 1, it's just a beautiful testimony of what God does inside the life of a person. Paul says, and they were hearing only, and they were the churches. The churches were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us, now he preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me, is what Paul says. And that's my hope for each one of us, that at some point, we've had this moment where we've experienced the grace of God, and now, because of the grace of God, our lives have been transformed, and now we're sharing that grace everywhere we go. Our lives have been changed, and now we want to share that life change, the life change that, that God brings through His Son, Jesus we want to share that with everyone. So Paul becomes this man who ends up writing the majority of the New Testament, and he's writing letters to these churches that he started throughout the New Testament. And so what we see is Paul's going on these different missionary journeys, and on his second missionary journey, on his second trip around the sea, on the second trip out to tell people about who Jesus is, he goes up north, and then he has this plan, and this plan is to go east to Asia, but God stops him. God stops him and says, I don't want you to go east to Asia. I want you to go west to Macedonia. We see it in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 16 is where we hear the story of Paul being called to Macedonia. And so he makes a left turn. He turns west and goes into Macedonia. And the first town he comes to in Macedonia is the city of Philippi, the city that this letter is written to. In Philippi, it's a metropolis. It's a, it's a larger city. It's, a, it's, it's known for its trade. It's at the crossroads of, of Greek and Eastern and, and, and Western culture. And so the, the Romans had taken it over, but they had kept the Greek culture that was there. And while it was a large city, it wasn't quite large enough to have a Jewish synagogue in it. While there were Jews that lived there, there weren't so many Jews that they had built the Jewish synagogue. And so when Paul first goes into Philippi, he does what he normally does. He just has this pattern and he goes to the place where the Jews meet, which happened to be by a river near the city of Philippi. And there he meets a woman named Lydia. Lydia is a business owner. The Bible says she's a seller of purple. And he shares the gospel with the Jewish people who are in that area. They've gone to the river to pray is really why they're there. And Lydia, it says, and her entire household pray to receive Christ. And then out of that, just like is normal with Paul, some trouble happens. He ends up being thrown in jail. And then while he's in jail, the Roman jailer that's there comes to faith in Christ. And so it's not long after Paul goes to Philippi that all of a sudden this community of believers begins to build. And around that community of believers, they become a church. And then Paul does what he does. He moves to the next city. He moves to the next city to continue his pattern of sharing the gospel with the people he knows, sharing the gospel with the people that aren't as familiar with him, and then establishing a church in that town. It reminds me of the gospel challenge that we've been given for this year, that each one of us in the life of our community would share the gospel this year, hopefully with as many people as we are old, as our age. I'm 46. I'm hoping to be able to, at a minimum, share the gospel in, in a one-on-one -on -one setting with at least 46 people. I hope you've taken that challenge. And how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to follow Paul's pattern. Start with what you know. 
Go to people you're familiar with. Tell them about what the grace of God has done inside your life and see what God does as you do. Just share your story. It's not simply about coming to church or inviting people to church. It's about starting a conversation with people that you can continue. And as you can continue this conversation, it's amazing to see what God does. That's exactly what Paul did everywhere he went. And he did it with the church at Philippi. And what we see in his letter to the Philippians is we see that Paul had this very loving, encouraging relationship with the people at Philippi. He wrote this letter from Ephesus. He was probably in jail at the, point, at the point that he wrote it. And so you see that reflected in some of the things that we'll see in the book of Philippians. And inside this book, you'll see that there's, really, there's only four chapters, and each of the chapters points us to something specific. And as we work verse by verse through this book, you're going to see each one of these things. In the first chapter, we're going to see that God identifies who we are as his people. And in chapter 2, we're going to see that God identifies who Jesus is as our Savior. In chapter 3, we're going to see that God identifies our purpose as his people. And in chapter 4, we're going to see how that purpose has its provision in who God is and who Jesus is. And so we're going to have this great opportunity over the next several weeks to just really explore this letter of admiration, this letter of encouragement, and this letter of instruction from Paul to the church at Philippi. So with all of that in mind, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, and let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. That's a habit that we have here. We stand in honor of reading God's Word. And so we're going to read just two verses today, and that's where we're going to focus on, is just two verses. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. Now, I know it might be easy to take a look at two verses like that and think, how in the world can you preach an entire message out of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in the city of Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Well, there's an important word right there at the very beginning of that that I want us to really spend our entire time on today, and it's the word bondservant. That's the word that I want us to take a look at today, the word bondservant. Now, as letters go, I know that the way we, lo- we write letters is a little bit different from the way they wrote letters back in the day, back in Paul's time. When we write a letter, we get to the very end of the letter, and we say something like, sincerely, Chad Balthrop. We get to the end of the letter, and we say, thank you, God bless Chad. And sometimes we put our title, Executive Pastor, First Baptist Church of Wausau. You know, sometimes we put our title, uh, you know, Head Man in Charge, whatever, whatever it is our title is. We tend to do that at the end of our letters with Paul. And in that time, it was common for them to start their letters establishing, this is who I am, and this is the authority by which I write. This is who I am, and this is the authority by which I write. And when Paul starts this letter, it's interesting to see how he identifies himself. He says, this is Paul, and with me is Timothy, and we are bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take a look at the 13 letters that Paul wrote, you'll notice that he starts his letters almost the same way every time, except for in 11 of those 13 letters, he says, I am Paul, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. In two of those books, he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when Paul writes, he's identifying the authority that he has, that he's one in authority, and sometimes when he's right or he writes, he identifies that he is one 
under authority. And with the book of Philippians, with the letter to the Philippians, he's saying, I am Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and I am one who is under the authority of God. Everything I'm about to write to you, I'm not writing as one who lords over you. I'm writing as one who stands with you under the authority of God. In the original language, that word for bondservant is a really interesting word. It's the word doulos. Say that with me. Say doulos. Doulos. Yeah. Now you can say it's all Greek to me, but I know a little bit of Greek. It's doulos. Um, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, the word doulos most of the time is not translated bondservant. Most of the time, the word doulos is translated slave. Now think about this. Paul, who's been a rising star in the Jewish faith, who's had this amazing conversion experience on the road to Damascus as he met Christ and realized this is the grace of God given for me. And now he's a rising star in the Christian faith. He becomes this incredible missionary. When it comes time for him to write a letter of encouragement to a church that he loved, they had an incredible relationship, as he's writing from prison, he identifies himself not as one in authority, he identifies himself as one under authority, and he says, I am Paul, and I am a slave to Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? I think that's an amazing way to identify yourself. Most of the time, we want to identify ourselves as someone who's powerful or someone who is prominent or someone who is, who is influential or who is rich or who is, you fill in the blank. We, want to, we like that swagger that comes with confidence. And Paul is saying here, with confidence, I'm a slave. And in every culture throughout history, being a slave has always come with a negative connotation. It's never been a good idea to be a slave. Yet right here, Paul says, my claim to fame is, the authority by which I write is, I want everyone to know that I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I wonder about how you would identify yourself. Would you identify yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ? Or would you identify yourself as one in authority who stands in authority over everyone else and those around you? Paul says, I'm a slave for Jesus Christ. Now, like I said, in every culture, being a slave has always had a negative connotation. And in our culture, we have this history behind us that says that slavery is a racial issue. But that's not the way it was at the time of this writing. At the time of this writing, slavery was almost always economic in its basis. Some research shows that in, in the cities at this time, that possibly one out of every three people one out of every three people who lived in cities were likely a slave because of the socioeconomic problems that they faced. And in the countries, it was probably one out of every five people. So when Paul said, I'm a slave for Christ, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew that he was one who was under authority, whose life was not his own, who didn't, he didn't have authority over his own life and his own body. He didn't have authority over when he went out or when he came in. Everything that he did was to serve his master. And even then, in that time, they viewed that as something that was not a good thing. They viewed that as something that was bad. Yet Paul here is wearing it as a badge of honor. Here I am. I am a slave for Christ. It actually highlights what is the overarching theme of the book of Philippians. Jesus and then his followers through men like Paul, they did something remarkable in Scripture. They rewrote and redefined the definition of humility 
They rewrote and redefined the definition of humility. You know, for many of us, uh, we might think of humility as something that we admire. You know, humility, that's, we admire that, you know, in someone else. <laughs> but for me, I, I, I'd, I'd rather just walk around with that swagger and I'd rather just be in authority. I'd rather be in charge. You know, I, I thought I was conceited until I found out I was perfect. You know, we want to be those kinds of people. And, and in reality, we admire humility as long as it's inside someone else. But what Jesus did and what Paul did with humility is this really interesting redefinition of what humility is all about. Before Jesus, humility wasn't humility, it was humiliation. You bowed before the king because the king could have you killed, right? That's the reason why you did that. You'd bow before the king because the king could have you killed. And even today, you submit and surrender to the will of your boss because your boss can have you fired, right? You, you submit and surrender to the will of those people in authority over you because sometimes if you don't, bad things can happen. You go to jail or, or something terrible happens. That's not humility. That's humiliation. You see, true biblical humility was rewritten by Christ he began before he was on the cross, but he rewrote it on the cross. In Mark chapter 10, he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he reaffirms that in Philippians chapter 2. We're not going to look at this now. We'll look at it in just a minute. But Jesus defines himself using this same word as doulos, as a slave. And I don't know if we realize this or not, but our culture has been totally transformed in regards to its understanding of and its admiration for humility. And it all started with Christ on the cross. Before Christ on the cross, humility wasn't humility, it was humiliation. But now, because of Christ, we look to our leaders and we expect them to be humble. We look to our leaders and we, we hope that they have confidence, but we get a little offended when they have swagger. You know, we look, at, we, we look at guys like Baker Mayfield. You know, I'm an OU fan. Our whole family, we're massive OU fans. Baker's fantastic on the football field, walks with a swagger, but if you watched him during the football season, there were times when his swagger just went over the top and it didn't feel like swagger anymore. It felt like something else. I thought I was wrong once, but I found out I was mistaken. See how good I am? You know, it felt like that instead of humility. And, and people look at that, and for some reason, our culture is just turned off by it. The reason why they're turned off by it, they don't even understand this, is because Jesus redefined what humility really is. You see, here's what I believe the definition of biblical humility is. I believe humility is using who you are and what you have for the benefit of others. Humility is using who you are and what you have for the benefit of others. Humility is not thinking so highly of yourself that you expect everyone else to serve you. And uh, that's, that's conceitedness, that's arrogance, that's hubris, that's not humility. Humility is also not on the opposite end of that, denying your own abilities, denying your own skills. That, that's, not, that's not what humility is, that's actually self-deception. It's not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is actually having a right understanding of what, you, what you're capable of of who you are, what your capabilities are, and what you have, and then deciding that because I am this and because I have that, I can now employ this for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. So true humility is not thinking highly of yourself and not thinking lowly of yourself. True humility is using who you are and what you have for the benefit of others. That's what Paul meant when he said, I am a slave for Christ. 
all that I am and all that I ever will be, I intend to employ on the behalf of bringing glory to God and for the benefit of his people. And that's the challenge for me and you as we step into this look at the book of Philippians. How can we become these kinds of bondservants? How can we become these kinds of slaves for Christ? Now, I know that as we take a look at these kinds of things, that this idea of slavery for us, it's just such a repulsive idea to our culture and to our generation. This idea that somehow that we would let someone else make decisions for us, that we would allow someone else to so influence our lives that, that their yes would become our yes and that their no would become our no. But what we have to realize as believers is that when we talk about being slaves to Christ, we're not talking about the kind of slavery that anyone else might imagine. You see, as a slave to Christ, there are some things we need to realize about how God views us and what it is that God has done for us. See, the thing about slaves in the first century, the thing about slaves in the New Testament church, and really even not just slaves, really anything you kind of take a look at today, all of those things have a value all of those things. Slaves back then, they had a value. They would buy and sell them. You can think about your house. Your house has a value. You buy and sell your house. There's, we're buying and selling things all the time. And when something is owned like a slave, when something is owned as a possession, there's a way for us to determine what that value is. And so here's how value is determined. For everything that you'll ever own, for everything that you'll ever have, and when God looks to me and God looks to you and says... This is, the, this is the pattern I, I want from you. This is the life I have for you. And, and when Paul identifies his life in Christ as that of a slave, we might think of that as something negative, but Paul certainly didn't. And the reason why he didn't think of it as something negative, the reason why is because he realized the value that he had in Christ. The value of everything you'll ever own is determined by three things. Here's these three things. It's real simple. First, the value is determined by who created it. Who created it? When I was in high school, I played the saxophone. I got a starter saxophone. It was a $300 saxophone, and I played it all through high school. And then I started getting better at saxophone, and I realized uh, this instrument's not good enough, and so I went and I bought another saxophone. This saxophone was awesome. Uh, you guys who don't know anything about instruments, this won't mean anything to you except just take my word for it. This is a great instrument. It was a Selmer Super Action 80 alto saxophone. It was hand-assembled in Paris, France. My beginner saxophone was 300 bucks. That saxophone was $3,000. And the primary difference was who created it. You've experienced that before, haven't you? you? You buy a shirt for $10, but you put the right logo on it, and all of a sudden it's a $50 shirt. You, you buy a pair of jeans, and, and they're $15, you rip a few holes in them and you put the right designer name on the back of them and they're $150, you know. You've experienced that before. The value of something is first determined by who created it. The next thing that determines value is who owned it. Who owned it? If I were to show you a baseball bat right now and say, how much is this bat worth? You might go, well, it's worth 50 bucks, or it's worth 100 bucks, or it's 125 bucks, or maybe it's a wooden bat, and, and maybe there's a signature on it. And I tell you, well, this bat was the bat that Babe Ruth used to hit his last home run. Now, how much is that bat worth? See, value is determined by who created it, but it's also determined by, by who owned it. 
You've experienced this with some other things inside, you, inside your own life. You've experienced that with not just things like baseball bats, but, but there's a man in our community who used to live here, Garth Brooks. You've, you've, we, we used to go through Garth Brooks sightings all the time when he lived here, and I had a friend who had a guitar that he gave to Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks took that guitar on tour with him, played it on tour, and then signed it. <laughs> and then when he got back, he gave it back to my friend. Value of that guitar after the tour Way different than the value of that guitar before the tour. Was there anything different about the guitar? No. Just who had owned it for just a little while. So that's the first thing. Uh, Who created it? Who owned it? And then finally, what was the purpose for which it was made? Values determined by the purpose for which it was made. Many of you, I look out right now and you're taking notes and you're using a pen to do it. And your pen actually has this little tube around it that's made out of plastic. And if you were to be honest, that little tube that contains the pen may just be worth about a nickel. It's just it's a little plastic tube, right? But when you go in for open heart surgery, there are some other little plastic tubes that they use. And those tubes aren't worth a nickel, those tubes might be worth $50,000, <laughs> depending on what your hospital charges you. Those tubes might be worth, well, they might be worth your life, right? One's worth a nickel. One might be worth your life. And the only difference, the only difference is the purpose for which it was made. So here's the thing we've got to see. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have this incredible privilege to be able to stand in the place of Paul. And as we look at Scripture, it's not to just stand in the place of Paul, but it's to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. To follow in his footsteps and to say, I'm going to become a slave to God. I'm going to commit my life to being a servant of him. Him, Jesus said it like this. He said, the only things I say are the things I hear my father say, and the only things I do are the things I see my father do. Paul said it. He said in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then later in Philippians chapter 3, he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, because you have us as a pattern. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, These things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. We have this incredible picture of following an incredible leader and how that look, that service looks an awful lot like slavery. That service looks an awful lot like surrender. That service looks an awful lot like us looking to God and saying, God, I believe that my value comes. My value comes not because I'm smart and not because I'm rich and not because I'm powerful and not because I'm prominent. My value comes because, God, you are the one who created me. God, you are the one who owns me. You purchased me with a price. And God, you are the one who has given me this incredible purpose. So as a slave, let's just, as a slave to God, let's, let's unpack that idea for just a minute. This idea that we were created by God. The value that we have as a slave is partly determined by the fact that you are created by God. Uh, turn with me for just a minute over in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, they say this. They say, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. 
You were created by God, and God cherishes every part that's about you. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1. Look at what God says in Philippians 1, 6. We'll take a closer look at this next Sunday morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, And I am confident of this very thing, that God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has created you, and he's created in you something, and he's not just going to let that work die. He's going to keep doing that work in you until it's completed because you are God's masterpiece. You are God's precious possession that he created. Proverbs chapter 8, we won't turn there, but Proverbs chapter 8, you see this picture of wisdom, and it's really kind of a picture of a pre-incarnate Christ. And you see this picture of wisdom that says that wisdom with, was with God as he was creating his inhabited world. And daily wisdom, Jesus, was God's delight. And it says wisdom's delight was with the sons of men. You were created by God, and God takes great delight in you. It's almost like that idea of the grandparent that's their first time to be a grandparent, and they've got all the thousand pictures of their grandchildren. Let me show you the delight I have and what has come from me. I had some hand in helping create this, and I want, I want you to know it. I want you to see it because you are a cherished masterpiece that God takes great delight in. The next idea is that you were bought at a price. You have incredible value as a slave to God, as a person to God, as a person of God. You have incredible value because you were created by him, but you were also bought at a price. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Listen to what God has done for you. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Turn back to Philippians again. And this time, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 reiterates this idea that you were bought with a price, that Jesus Christ exchanged his life as the purchase price for your life and for mine. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and taking the form of a servant. See, there's that word doulos again taking the form of a slave, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was the great exchange that took place. That Jesus looked to you as his creation and he took such delight in you as his creation that when he saw your life broken by sin, when he saw the danger of the temptations that you face, when he saw the separation that you experience between him or between, between him and you and between you and God, he simply from heaven's halls couldn't stand it anymore. I can't let that which I've created that has so much personal value to me. I can't let them go through this. And so he willingly came. He laid aside, according to Philippians chapter 2, he laid aside his authority as God. 
And he laid aside his rights as a man. And he laid aside his reputation as a person of character. And he laid aside all those things to be accused as a criminal and to die a criminal's death on a cross so that he could pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. All those things that you do to hurt others and all those things that others do to hurt you, all of that sin has been forgiven and has been, has been paid for. The debt and the penalty of that sin has been paid for on the cross of Christ because he established himself as a servant to me and you, as a slave to us because he paid for us. Your value is inestimable. Why is it inestimable? Because you were created by God. And you were bought with a price. But there's more to it than that. You were created by God and you were bought with a, Christ, by, by, with a price by Christ. But you were also made for a mission. You were made for a mission. Just like the difference in that little plastic ring around your pen and that plastic piece that saves someone's life in the middle of an open heart surgery. You were made for a mission. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The verses that everybody thinks of when we talk about Ephesians chapter 2 are verses 9 and 10. Excuse me, are verses 8 and 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But the verse I want us to focus on is verse 10. For we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are Christ's workmanship. I don't know where you'll go to work tomorrow, but the reason why God sent you there is because he's got a purpose for you being there, and it's bigger than just making a living. You're there to make a difference. And you can do that by doing exactly what Paul did. You can show up, and with the people you know, you can simply tell the story of the grace of God in your life. And all of a sudden, you'll be fulfilling the gospel challenge that we have for this year. You can show up at work tomorrow, or you can show up at school tomorrow, and can, someone can show up and say, man, I'm having this problem at my house, or with my home, or with my, my kids, or I'm, I'm facing these financial challenges. And with one sentence, hey, I'll pray for you. You've started a conversation that can change eternity for someone. Why? Well, because you were created by God. And in that creation, he purchased you with the price of his blood, with the life of his own son. And he did all of that because you were made for a mission. James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, they say something really remarkable. It says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That phrase, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every time that phrase, first fruits, is used in scripture, it's always in the context of the tithe. It's always in the context of this idea that God would give his first and best for us, and so now it's time for us to give our first and best for him. But in verse 18 of James chapter 1, he looks to us and he says, I have given you as a gift. I have given you as a gift the first and the best that I have to this generation and to this community. You were made for a mission. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see it in just a few weeks. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For my determined purpose is to know God. What an incredible mission. 
for my determined purpose is to know God. And later he says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to you to be a slave for Christ? To be a slave to who God is. You know what it means? It means you recognize that God has created you and he sees in you inestimable value. It means that God has purchased you through the blood of his son, that you were bought with a price. And it means that you were made for a mission. And Paul begins his letter to the Philippians by saying, this is who I am. I am Paul, created by God, bought with a price, and made for a mission. Would you join me in this? Come with me. This is a gospel, not just a challenge. This is a gospel adventure. And when we live out this gospel adventure, we live in a way like no one could ever imagine. You see, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Ultimately, ultimately, the Bible teaches us that we will either be a slave to sin or we will be a slave to God. We'll be a slave to ourself and our selfish nature and our selfish desires, or we'll be a slave to God. I know a lot of people who are, who are wealthy. They've got lots of money. And some of them will tell me, I just feel like I'm a slave to all this wealth. And some of them are poor, and they'll say, I just feel like I'm a slave to all of this poverty. Even those who are wealthy will say to me, I have all this money, but you know what I've learned is that money can't buy happiness. It just buys a better quality of misery because I'm a slave to my career or I'm a slave to my ambition, or I'm a slave to my desires, we'll either be a slave to our sin and to ourself, or we'll be a slave to God. And here's the biggest problem with being a slave to sin. As a slave to sin, you are not with the creator who cherishes you. You are owned by someone who's invested nothing in you, and by someone who expects nothing from you except failure. You see, that's the challenge. As a slave to sin, you're owned by someone who didn't create you, has invested nothing in you, and expects nothing from you except for you to be consumed by their desires and their wishes, for you to be consumed and fail. But that's not God's desire for you. You'll either be a slave to sin or you'll be a slave to God. And the ultimate question is, will you surrender to the one who created you, to the one who purchased you, and to the one who made you for a mission?